0: This is PRN, your as-needed dose of medical knowledge. I'm Alana Castro-Gilliard. And I'm Chandler Davis. This podcast provides general information and discussion about medicine, health, and related subjects. It is not intended and should not be construed as medical advice or the practice of medicine. The views expressed herein do not necessarily represent the views or opinions of AdWord via College of Osteopathic Medicine or any other institution or employer. Today we get the chance to speak with Dr. Champagne and Dr. Abraham Hardy on the effects of the human papillomavirus and the value of the HPV.
1: Hi, I'm Dr. Sophia Abraham-Hardy. I'm Chair of Pediatrics at Virginia College of Osteopathic Medicine and Pediatrician and Clinical Director of New Beginnings Pediatrics. And I am a mother of two, but they are far from the age of receiving their Gardasil shot. But if they were 11 today, would be getting
2: I'm Dr. Carrie Champine. I am the clinical chair of obstetrics and gynecology here at the Virginia College of Osteopathic Medicine, and I also am a general OB-GYN at Virginia Women's Health. I have four kids. I have three boys and a girl, and I have a boy that's already been vaccinated for HPV, so I can speak from a mother's standpoint and then three waiting in line for it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to leave this over to you guys, but what is HPV? So great question. HPV is called the human papillomavirus. It is a virus. There's over 150 types of HPV, but about 75% of those cause what we call the common warts. So like warts you get on your hand or foot or something like that. Out of those 150 types, there's only about 25% that are what we would consider mucosal warts. So that I think is where your topic of interest is. That would be things, oral, genital, that type of thing. It's a very common infection. It's estimated that there's currently 80 million people affected with it. Almost 14 million people are affected each year, making it the most common sexually transmitted infection. And it can have two effects. There's some types that will produce warts, so what we call genital warts, but there's also types that can cause cancer. And the cancers that we worry about with HPV are vulva, vaginal, penile, anus, and then oral pharyngeal. So, a very common virus that we see in a lot of patients.
0: What is your experience, Dr. Hardy?
1: So as a pediatrician, fortunately, our kids transfer over to Dr. Champagne or any of the other obstetricians for their gyne or women's health care, and we highly encourage that. So our experience is typically starting with the simple warts that we have on hand. Very common, different techniques to do to either over-the-counter products, and you will see a sea of options when you walk down Walmart, Target, CVS. We usually start off that as our first treatment line. You can always bump up to prescription ointments that can, through a compounding pharmacy, or you can do cryotherapy. Uh, Depending on the age of the child, depending on where the lesion is, how many, on the body will determine the treatment option. But what we're here specifically for is talking about the HPV vaccine. So my experience with it is typically at 11 years of age when they come in for the 11-year checkup and they all come in for 11 because that's the same year when they have to get their Tdap for middle school, right? So they all come in for that. So we have a captivated audience. So our job as a pediatrician is to push those vaccines and educate our patients as much as possible on either the misnomers, the uh, perceptions, about these vaccines. Tdap is usually very easy because it's required for school. Others, they get kicked out of school, right? So that's an easy thing. The other ones during that same time are meningococcal. And most people are scared of meningitis. If I I scare them and I say, hey, this is an infection of your brain, nobody wants it, right? But HPV, there is a lot of kickback based on perceptions and we can talk more into that. So my my biggest interaction with HPV starting off is with my 11-year-old girls and boys who come in for their well visit.
0: So, what I'm hearing is that both of you guys are very pro HPV vaccine. Yes. Um, what is kind of the importance or drive behind a lot of these organizations like the CDC recommend this vaccination so strongly?
2: So, good question. I think the reason is because HPV is responsible for over 30,000 cases of cancer a year, about 12,000 in males, about 20,000, 19,000 to 20,000 in females specifically what we see in our office or what the reason we do pap smear screenings is cervical cancer and cervical cancer there's about 12,000 cases diagnosed a year about 4,000 of those women will die from cervical cancer but the thing is there's precursors to the cancer um, HPV causes these abnormalities that we find in their cervix these abnormalities that we find on their vulva that are all from HPV and so if we could prevent women from getting this initial virus that causes these abnormalities that lead to cancer we could eradicate over 30,000 cases of cancer a year. That's certainly a lot. So from my perspective, it really
0: does seem like it's something important to do, but I feel like as a kid at least, it was only a young woman that got it and a lot of people fought against it. In your minds, why can it be so controversial to talk about something that could be life-saving?
1: I think the biggest stigma with the HPV vaccine, it is sexually transmitted. And that is the biggest barrier. When you come in at 11, no parent wants to accept or even fathom that their 11-year-old is or can be sexually active in the future. Right. We all want to raise our perfect kids who we are going to shield them till they get married. They're going to be sexually active. But that is not the reality that we live in. Right. So it's usually a barrier on the parents part to acknowledge that, yes, this is a sexually transmitted disease. My child is not going to be sexually active. So hence They don't need the
2: shot because it's just extra vaccine that they really don't need. Or we hear I will address that later. Like I'll get that when they get older but the key is getting the vaccination before you become sexually active. Your question about why girls got it, it's who that it was studied in. So the original clinical trials were in girls from 19 to 25. Um, not until this actually new 9-valent one came out um, was it approved in both men and women. And so now we protect against type 16, 18, 6, and 11, which is of HPV cancers. And then they've also added types 31, 33, 45, 52, and 58. So that covers 90% of your HPV-related cancers can be covered by this vaccination. But the the whole reasoning for a woman getting is that's the population we studied in. And the other thing they looked at it was cost-effectiveness. So if you're vaccinating every girl, do you need to vaccinate the boys? But because we're starting, we see these lower vaccination rates in certain populations with HPV, it's become necessary to vaccinate boys. And then also any boys that are having sexual relationship with other boys is gonna be another population that we would miss if we only vaccinated girls.
0: When I was studying public health as an undergraduate, one of the statistics was that most people will be affected by HPV at some point in their life. And that at my undergraduate institution, a very large percentage would have had HPV at this point already. There are so many people that are going to get this, but we're not vaccinating against it, but also not three quarters of the people are being affected by
2: it. So I think what you're, are you asking is that I could be one of the 85% of women that have it, but never have any effects from it. So why does it, yeah. matter because there's no way to tell who's going to have be the affected person. I tell my patients, HPV does not care who you are. It does not care what your socioeconomic status is. It does not care if you're a male or female. It does not care how much money you have. It doesn't care about anything. When it decides to come out, you could be the person that gets the cancer. Um, you could be the person that gets the warts. And yeah, for sure, most of the population is going to be remain asymptomatic, but we just don't know who is going to be the one that it activates into a cancer, and so it's important to potentially vaccinate everybody. Does it fall in the same line of herd immunity? Yeah, so there is herd immunity with HPV, and I could not tell you what percentage has to be vaccinated, but that's why they started studying it in boys, because we were not getting to that in females by just vaccinating females alone.
0: And how does it show up in men then? Because I think that that's a big question that a lot of my male peers have. So, I think with men, typically, obviously, they don't get cervical
1: cancer. They don't get vulvar cancer because they don't have those parts, right? But they can certainly get penile cancer, uh, which exists. Now, obviously, the percentage is much less than cervical cancer. But again, there is a set screening tool for cervical cancer. There isn't like a swab for penile cancer, right? So it all comes down to a physical exam that a family physician or an internist that would do to get an accurate screening, right? So I think that's why probably our numbers, we have such a set screening process, and that's why we know the numbers for cervical cancer. You, If you're involved in oral sex, you can get oral mucosal cancers as well. So That is fair game. Again, exactly as Dr. Champlain said, you could be male-female if you got the virus. At some point, it can have potential to cause
2: cancer. I think it's an important question. So according to the CDC this last year, for every HPV caused 10,800 cases of cervical cancer, 300,000 women presented to the office with high-grade cervical lesions. So that's essentially pre-cancer of the cervix. There's 800 cases of penile cancer a year, 3,300 of vulvar and vaginal cancer, 5,900 of anal cancer, and 12,900 of oral pharyngeal cancer. And again, 90% of those would have been preventable with the shot. Is there any
0: other way that we can make this preventable? Like, what are, is there any other kind of angle that we can come from that would make it preventable? Or is the shot the end all be all for this? I think anytime with, with the virus one thing or any
1: disease process right if you think about it, this is the only cancer out there that there is a prevention that you can get it and the chances of you getting it drop significantly right breast cancer comes down to your exam and that's assuming people go to the doctor or do self-checks right so this is one of the probably the only cancer that has a vaccine out for right so that's one thing as far as targeting any other angle I think it is the vaccine right because you want to build your immunity as much as you can towards this virus and that's the importance of getting it before you become sexually active not once the virus is already in your system it's before you even think about becoming sexually active
0: can you guys speak a little bit too as well They've expanded the age range now because when I was younger, it was between 11 to 15-ish, if I remember correctly. You had to do a three-series shot. Can you explain about what it's like now, what the standards are? So I think
1: initially was 11 to 25. Um, If you, obviously we targeted that 11 to 14 range, right? So initially everybody got a three-dose series between 11 and 25. You got, say you got it first today, then you got it between one and two months, and then you got it six months from the first dose. Now, because again, I think they're trying to make it more enticing for our younger population, and I think there is research to back it up as far as the efficacy of those two shot series versus the three shot series. If you are less than 14, you need only two shots, six months to 12 months apart, the doses, and they have just as much efficacy if done before you're 14. After fourteen to twenty-five, I guess now or forty-five, no, 45 wow. you get the three shots here. So.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay, I didn't realize that they had expanded it to such a large age range, which is great. Mm-hmm. There's kind of been this rise, I think everybody knows in the medical field of this anti-vaxxer movement. Can you guys speak to that and maybe if that's changed in your own experiences? So we see that quite a bit in our clinic and I think
1: there are are these anti-vaxxers who are strict, I don't want any vaccine. And those groups fall into different categories in my experience. Obviously, I haven't looked up like what percent of our population are anti-vaxxers, you can definitely find clusters of it. And usually you know those clusters based on popping of random diseases, hence the measles outbreak, right? So I think the disease, it does happen in clumps. Their reasoning I think can be broken down to lack of education or miscommunication or misrepresentation about that vaccine. And I think some people say religious preferences. And the last thing I put in a random category where they just don't want it, but they'll come up with any random excuse out there to not get a vaccine. Uh, My most ludicrous excuse was this was the government's ploy to keep track of us. And I had, as a pediatrician, I had nothing to rebuttal that with. I was like, no, I think if the government wants to keep track of you, there are easier ways to do that than putting a vaccine in your kids so i mean the realm of excuses vary but i think my personal experience has been miscommunication misrepresentation of the vaccine majority of time i can flip parents over to getting the vaccine by just educating and answering their questions and showing them pictures of hey this was what will happen to your kid are you okay with these risks? Because if you're okay as death as one of the risks, don't get the vaccine. As a parent, as a mother, I would not want that risk, right? If there's something to protect your child, why wouldn't you give them the vaccine? Now, one thing they say, well, it's not 100% anyway, right? Like chickenpox, for example, right? But we have also come through a stage where my parents would say when one person got chickenpox, all the kids went over to play, so they would all get the chickenpox and build immunity. And yes, certain disease processes, you build the best immunity by actually getting the disease process. But if you look at the burden on the family, uh, parents taking off, Assuming no complications come from the disease process, right? You There are complications from the flu. Yes, majority of healthy people can survive the flu. Other than missing work and laying in bed and losing a couple of pounds, you will survive. But there have been perfectly healthy people die from the flu. If you are okay with that risk, don't get the shot, right? So I think education has been my best way to actually change minds and get them vaccinated. Another thing, other than the anti-vaxxers, I think, I don't know if they fall in this category or how they would consider, they don't consider them anti-vaxxers, but they are altered schedule people. And there are many books and schedules out there. Obviously as a pediatrician in our clinic at New Beginnings, we do follow the CDC immunization schedule, maintaining that spacing. As a pediatrician, obviously I'll take an altered schedule as opposed to no vaccine right so we do work with our parents and the patients to get them vaccinated in their schedule but we do have an immunization policy so we expect all our kids to be vaccinated six months from the time when the cdc says they're due
2: so from in my education in my office takes a slightly different um course and a lot of times the problem i have is if they haven't had hpv they're already sexually active And I have no way to test them to see if they have HPV and what type of HPV they have, which is probably the more important part of HPV is, I can't just do a test until if you have it. We gotta wait and see if anything happens on your pap smear. But I also talk to them about, yeah, there's one in 100 girls, one in 100 people are gonna get warts. And maybe that's not a big deal to you, but now I've gotta use acid to take them off. Or I gotta take you to the operating room and do a laser and it's disfiguring and it's painful or you have HPV and your pap smear is abnormal, now I have to do biopsies and sometimes we burn parts of the cervix or we cut parts of the cervix out, which is gonna increase your risk of preterm labor and infertility and so, you, yeah, absolutely, we hear all the time from people, the chance I'm going to get cervical cancer is low, and you're absolutely right. If you come and see me every year for your exam, you're right. But it's all these other steps and the anxiety with coming in for procedures and the cost and the inconvenience, and like you said, time off from work um, for something that we could have potentially prevented in the beginning. Dr. Hardy and I have been talking about recently looking at between, because we have a lot of mutual patients, or the child sees Dr. Hardy and the mom sees me, and we've been trying to look at like why the vaccination rates are low with HPV. I think social media is a scary thing, and you can put an HPV vaccination and someone has some vaccination injury story on there that they really have no way to prove that it was from the vaccination, but then you're a mom, and when you're a mom, it's different, right? So I can remember when it was time for my son to get his HPV vaccination, I knew scientifically and medically that it was the right thing to do but yeah you like hold your breath and think please let nothing happen but then the science part of you is like no this is fine like I'm letting misinformation scare me I look at the good that I'm doing yeah there's a chance he might have some redness around on his arm or pass out after a vaccination or things that we can see after everyone this is not unique to HPV when I was kind of looking at because we're talking about doing a little study on this, one of the biggest barriers is lack of recommendation from a physician. And so there are some physicians, fortunately not our pediatricians around here, but there are some physicians that don't recommend the HPV vaccination. It's not part of their normal vaccination schedule or what they um, counsel on. And, you know, that's, that's a problem. That's a, that's a big problem. For a while, cost was an issue. I think that's better with insurances. But the other thing is um, people going in for their annual visits and their well check visits, and not everybody does it. So I was really excited this year when we got a letter home from the school that their HPV is something that they're gonna offer at the school. So that even if I did not wanna make a well check to come in and see Dr. Hardy, this is something that we're gonna make more readily available. And I think that's all important things that will help us vaccinate vaccinate our kids. So there really are a lot of factors at play. There's
0: cost of care potentially, mm-hmm. there's misinformation, whether that be about vaccines in general or what the vaccine is for. Um, there's physicians not actually expressing the need for it. Mm-hmm. There's just a plethora of things, but it's so important. Do you see a different future for the HPV vaccine or do you see it maybe increasing with time as we get more data? I guess, what is the, the image that you have of the future of this HPV vaccine?
1: So I think uh, statistics will only get better. Um, because as more as the vaccine has been around longer it's funny people still call hpv the new vaccine oh, yeah. even though it's been researched we have 10 years of data yeah. but people call it the new vaccine and it is compared to your varicella and your zoster shots and flu it is a new vaccine but it, we have 10 years of scientific data to back it up right so but i think when it becomes an old vaccine i think people will automatically it'll become the norm it'll become what you do? Hey, I get my Tdap. School systems, and I think policy making changes how people impact. Right? They might not want the Tdap, but they will get the T TDAF because the school requires it. And some colleges' requirement in Chicago. Not all colleges or schools require it. As every state's Department of Health or CDC and all the policies come into play and say this is a mandated. Requirement. Same thing for measles. Right now, certain states are curbing. You cannot do an altered schedule for MMR. It took a measles outbreak to get there, right? But people are realizing that, hey, it is a cause and effect, right? So I think as more policies take into impact, not so much mandating, but saying, hey, if you need to come here, you need to do it, right? And I think more people, and they'll see, hey, I didn't have any side effects or I tolerated the vaccine, fine, right? And I
2: think... It will only get better. I agree. I think that there was a whole generation of people that didn't see any of these diseases, right? Like, we didn't see measles. We didn't see chicken packs. And now, I mean, here, whooping cough is a thing. You know, we have babies getting whooping cough. And we see all these stories on the news of measles. And kids are coming with chicken packs. And I think now the public is going to start seeing, wait a minute, these were things that I did not have to worry about, and suddenly I do, and I think then that will help then HPV become a little more accepted also.
1: The other thing I've also known, I think our younger generation, the young adolescents are becoming more proactive mm-hmm. about their health, very much more than when I look back when I was 11 or 20. I feel like the the younger patients now want to know what's happening in the doctor's office. I don't know if that's a change because of the generations, or is it a change in how medical schools are teaching young physicians. For example, when I have a patient, as long as they can talk and they can communicate, I try to get most of the history from the patient. Right, so right at a young age, we're putting them responsible for their health. And I always have the parent chime in, you know, if there's a question they can't answer, or they have a different opinion on something, but we, give autonomy, and maybe it's the osteopathic profession, I don't know, but that's the way in our clinic, the kids are the main historians, right? Um, So it's instilled in them that, hey, this is something that I have control over, right? And if a child is, as they become young adults and they're hearing about it and, you know, advertisements and commercials and social media, they might look into it on their own. In social media, it's so easy. And they might come and ask us that question, right? And we can have a discussion with the patient rather than trying to jump through the hurdles of the parent. Like I've had patients who wanted it and the parents were leery about it. Mm -hmm. But in the end, the patient said, I want it. So I think that generational thing will also happen, which will help our vaccination rates.
2: And my 13-year-old has just told me that they are learning about it in school. So she had family life and I asked her what they talked about and HPV vaccination was one of them. And she could tell me how many types we can vaccinate against. Some of her facts were a little off, but I feel like they're doing a better job of having very real discussions with the kids about what can happen. And, you know, when you have sex and... I think that's another thing is parents will tell me well my daughter's always going to make sure her partner has a condom condoms aren't going to fully protect against um HPV the only thing that's going to protect against it is if neither partner has had any exposure and they're only with each other Um, otherwise that's not going to protect so I think the schools and I only can speak for the public schools are doing a good job of bringing this topic up too and so my daughter actually asked me did I have my HPV vaccination yet so the answer was no but she has an appointment (laughs) (laughs) that's really good it it seems like it's something that
0: we're coming at from a bunch of different angles and i love the idea of health from a public health standpoint you know and so we're taking care of communities through the school system through their medical care and i really find that that's
2: important Did you guys have a chance to read those articles? So I read it a long time ago. Can you remember? Remind me what it was about.
0: So the article was basically saying that in Mexico there was this, this group of scientists that found a cure to HPV, and the gist of kind of what I got from it was that it was a very low cohort, and in my age group at least it was really circulating. Like wow, like there's a there's a cure to HPV. But then when I started to look through the articles, I saw that I couldn't find the link or the actual study that was behind it. And so that's what I was kind of interested in. Is social media is great in some ways when like, kids can have more autonomy and ask questions, but it can also be really quite dangerous if somebody grabs onto like a piece of information and runs with it because people could then think, oh, there's a cure to HPV.
2: Mm-hmm. Maybe I don't need the vaccine anymore. So I just didn't know if you guys had any thoughts on that. There is no cure as far as I know, but I know that a lot of patients, the first question that when we talk about HPV is what antibiotic can I take? Or what can I do to get rid of it? And outside of cigarette smoking, increasing the risk of you keeping it longer, we know nothing, we have no cure of it. And the other problem is who would we give it to? Like we don't know who has it, right? If we have 80 million people that have it, but only, you know, So many thousand are showing up to the doctor's office with these abnormal cervical lesions or penile cancer. I mean, I don't know how we, unless, you know, who would we give this cure to? So I think it's gonna be, it's a virus, it's gonna be very hard to cure, just like we can't cure herpes or anything, other virus, you know, the flu, yeah. So not that I'm aware of.
1: Yeah, I would take that with a grain of salt. So, you know, we know in medical community, any form of alternative medicine, there is a time and place for it, right? You know, whether it be homeopathic, whether it be gymnotherapy, you know, Dr. Williams talked about, there is a time and place for it. But as a medical community, if you do not have the medical literature to back it up or the research to back it up, and you have the competence to understand what is a good study, what is not a good study, right? But the lay public probably will not. They just see cure for cervical cancer or cure for HPV. Just because you have, you have HPV doesn't mean you have cervical cancer either, right? So there was so much, so much misnomer in just that sentence. And what is a cure? Taking your cervix off? Like what is the cure, Like you know? So again, anything in medicine is risk benefit. So oftentimes I would say you might have something, but is the risk of the medication greater than the risk of the disease, right? You have to assess that. And if you don't have evidence-based literature, the same thing is with over-the-counter cough medicine for kids less than four. I don't recommend it. I want to see these kids. And the reason is because the FDA has not approved it because there's not enough research to back it up because nobody's going to volunteer their kids to, like, you know, try these medicines. And there are side effects, and we don't recommend them because I can't tell you what those side effects are, right? So you are taking on more risks, and that is a discussion. I mean, I think no physician will, if somebody was had a high risk of having HPV or cervical cancer and their screening were negative and they wanted to try whatever cure was out there, as long as they – did the time to research it and understand they might be risked, they might not, they are in the power to make that decision, right? But as a medical community, if if it is not endorsed by the AAP, ACOG, CDC, there's a reason for that, right? Because it doesn't have the medical literature to back it up.
0: I like to kind of finish up the interview by asking if you guys have any advice for future medical students, just because we're learning and we're really trying to take everything in. Um, and just what do you think could make us the best doctors we can be? So I think
1: you guys will all already be better than us and the reason I say that because you're doing things like this. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I, our class we studied. Uh, we worked hard and we all have our strengths but you guys are all already doing things outside with the interest of public health, you're more cognizant of your population and medicine as a whole, which I think is also the osteopathic profession of how you've been taught, right? Um, As far as students, I think the best thing that'll make you successful, and I don't mean more money, but successful as in you enjoying what you do and giving back to your community, right? And being content with where you are, um, I think is having humility and having a good work ethic. Those are things that cannot be taught. No amount of medical school training, no amount of residency training, no amount of patients will teach you that. Or if it does, it came with a heavy cost, right? And so I feel like focusing on that, like you all have the skills, the knowledge to make it through and be successful. But what makes you an exceptionally good doctor that will care for their patients is are those things the humility and your work ethic, right? Going above what simple medicine calls for, going above that. And, you know, targeting difficult conversations like this, right? Mm-hmm. This is a skill. You're already listening to it, but you will get the
2: opportunity to practice it as you go through your clinical I know what's up years. In So just advice to medical students, not necessarily to make you better, but um, you're going to be better if you do what you want. So I get lots of calls from medical students about fears of picking certain specialties because of work hour and life and stuff like that. Go for what you want what you like. You know, if you are doing something just for the hours, those are going to be really long hours. But if you're doing what you want with the population you want to help, the hours are going to fly by. And then the other thing is when you are with your patients, listen to your patients. So I think the only one thing that you guys probably have that we didn't is technology Um, put the computer down put the phone down look at your patient they'll almost always tell you what's wrong you usually don't really have to dig for it if you just really just listen
0: well thank you guys so much for having this conversation with me thank you for For having us for more prn please be on the lookout if you like this episode tell someone about it and start up a conversation i'm alana castro Gilliard. i'm chandler davis and this is prn